Hello, Duncan Green here with the latest roundup of posts on from poverty to power. Bumper crop this week, two weeks worth because we had uh, bank holidays uh, for May Day and the coronation. So I just posted three each week, so I'm lumping them all together. So I'll crack on. First post, seeing the forest beyond the trees, coalition building in Indonesia and beyond and the lessons for donors. So this was a guest post by Nicola Nixon, Erman Rahman, Sumaya Saluja and Rapiento Alam Soyaputra from the Asia Foundation. Coalition building, one of those topics that gets enthusiastic nods of approval among development practitioners. But what distinguishes effective from ineffective coalitions? And what can donors do to support them? In the Asia Foundation's recent reflection paper, On the Right Tack, we look at several case studies, some of which involve goals achieved by coalitions of individuals and organisations collaborating over decades. In each case, the Asia Foundation initiated coalition building efforts to facilitate locally led and sustainable change, which are achieved by fostering relationships between powerful actors while amplifying the voices and influence of those less powerful. Take, for example, the work of our Indonesia office on supporting improved local governance. Since 2001, the Indonesian government has been pursuing an ambitious policy of fiscal, administrative and political decentralisation. Indonesia's decentralisation agenda seeks to foster bottom-up development by providing sub-national governments with larger budgets and greater discretion over how to use them in ways that ideally serve the interests of communities and are in line with regional development goals. Yet sub-national governments have struggled to implement the agenda to its maximum benefit. In 2004, the Asia Foundation's Indonesia office began using a coalition building approach to supporting local governments in strengthening the quality, effectiveness and inclusiveness of the latter's planning and budgeting. Coalitions were two-tiered, comprised of a handful of national civil society organisations, CSOs, with technical skills in research and budget analysis, which were well positioned to mentor a larger number of small local advocacy-based CSOs. For example, under one governance programme, the Foundation convened approximately 30 organisations that were advocating for more resources and greater transparency in budgets for basic services such as health and education. Most local CSOs had limited research experience or skills in evidence-based advocacy. Over several years, through collaboration and mentoring, members of the coalition improved their ability to collect and analyse government data and to advocate effectively for local policy reforms. For example, by 2010, coalitions of local stakeholders in the cities of Pekalongan and Semarang in central Java had succeeded in influencing the respective municipal governments to increase spending on local health insurance. As work progressed and these kind of city and district level reforms were being achieved, the Foundation and its partners sought to encourage improvements in national fiscal decentralisation policy. In collaboration with Seknas Fitra, an organisation focused on government budget transparency, local CSOs across 42 districts advocated successfully for several new national policies that promoted higher spending on education and health services, as well as measures to re reduce pork barrelling. I haven't heard of pork barrelling as a verb, I like it, in local spending. In 2010, the Foundation expanded the national level co coalition to increase its reach and impact, convened by Patiro, and there are links to all these organisations, an organisation that pursues governance reform. The coalition includes Seknas Fitra and nine local organisations. Learning from the previous programme, Seknas Fitra supported local CSOs 
to advocate for more gender responsive policies. Partiro used the information gathered at the local level to lead the coalition in advocating for the adoption of a national strategy for gender responsive budgeting. In 2012, the foundation teamed up with Partiro, Seknas Vitra and the Indonesia Budget Centre to explore how fiscal decentralisation could support better environmental policies and so on. <clears throat> so what you've got there is over almost 20 years, these coalition driven efforts to improve local government planning and budgeting for better services, gender responsive policies and improved environmental management have been financed by a range of donors. Each investment involved a three to five year project focused on the delivery of outcomes such as improved guidelines, capacities and policy changes. When projects are time bound, their results and outcomes invariably tend to be measured within the narrow frame of the project cycle, akin to focusing on individual trees without glimpsing the forest as a whole. The forest reveals itself over time in the subtle long term evolution of the trust based relationships in which the progress of coalition efforts must be grounded to be sustainable. In stepping back and ideally staying the course through successive investments, we can see the forest. Coalition building is both long-term and labour-intensive. It requires careful attention to shifting stakeholder preferences, strategies, goals and allegiances. As with other case studies presented in the paper, including policy reform in the, in the Philippines and subnational government reform in Nepal and Sri Lanka, Coalition members understand that change, whether it involves formal institutions or informal norms and values, requires adaptability and the careful navigation of political economies. To support this kind of work, donors need to think in decades. When people, relationships and working partnerships take centre stage, a coalition building approach moves beyond the more formulaic and technocratic version, um, such as you know, capacity development, knowledge transfer, technical assistance, to valuing longer term results such as greater solidarity, stronger and more effective networks and improved collective action. In this way, sustaining cooperation gains primacy over short term outputs and deliverables and the forest thrives. So I really like that post for two reasons. One is I think this forest analogy is really interesting that you know, you're trying to actually sow seeds in this bigger forest of uh, the, the density of conversations within society and the density of networks and that that is often not captured in lots of single issue projects, single short term projects, but also Indonesia, right? A massive country, um, fascinating work going on at civil society level and at least in the UK, largely absent from our radar because it's a long way away. Um, you know, it's not a former colony unless you're Dutch. Um, and, and, you know, we just miss out on so much that's happening there. So thanks for, for that useful post. Second post was about old people, uh, a topic to which I'm increasingly interested. Um, and this is a guest post by Babkan Babajanian, and it's older and at the sharp end. Why more social protection is needed to protect older people in the global food, finance and fuel crisis. The current global crisis with soaring prices for food and fuel has been devastating for many people around the world, but for older people in poor countries with no access to pensions or social protection, it is particularly bleak, and worse still for older women. Sadly, although they are bearing the brunt of the crisis, they don't have any say in how to mitigate against it, and this needs to change. Since 2022, most countries have witnessed sharply escalating prices for food, fuel and fertilizers, accompanied with a fall in average household incomes. 
The effects of this crisis on people's lives and livelihoods have been devastating. New research from HelpAge International across 10 countries, Argentina, Colombia, Ethiopia, Lebanon, Malawi, Mozambique, the Philippines, Sri Lanka, Tanzania and Yemen, shows how rising food and fuel prices combined with falling income mean that older people cannot afford the food they normally eat and in some countries they are literally starving, selling their assets and are reduced to begging. We found that many older people prioritise feeding their grandchildren over themselves. An older person from Sheikh Yothman in Yemen said, we buy bread and cheese and feed the children while we do not eat. The report also reveals that across the 10 countries, older people are struggling to afford to pay for healthcare or to reach hospitals and health centres due to rising transport costs. Older people in particular are struggling to cope with the crisis as they don't have alternative sources of income. They often lack adequate savings and access to credit. And crucially, the people interviewed do not have access to social protection. In most of our research countries, only a small share of older people received any form of benefit, such as pensions or cash transfers from the state. The existing pension system in these countries mainly benefit those with formal jobs and civil servants, usually men. Many older women, for example in Sri Lanka and Colombia, who have done unpaid domestic and care work previously, cannot access any form of social protection. So what's to be done? We must enhance lower income countries' capacity to deal with the crisis, alongside increasing older people's ability to cope and recover. And yet older people are often invisible in the current policy discourse at both national and global level. The assumption is that they will be helped by their families. But even where that happens, there is a cost. In Tanzania, where only a small proportion of older people receive a pension from a contributory scheme, older people are indeed three times more likely than the national average to receive money transfers from family members. But reliance on family members, friends and neighbours had a negative impact on many people's mental health as they felt shame and embarrassment in having to accept help. Yeah, I mean, my mum, no way would she have accepted money from me. You know, there's a question of pride and thinking, you know, I've, uh, these are my children and I've set them off on a path and I'm not going to become a burden on them. Furthermore, not all families are able to support their older relatives anymore as they themselves are stretched to the limit. There's also a bigger normative question. Why should older people rely on their families to satisfy their basic needs. Should this not be a responsibility of the state to ensure that people who've worked all their lives are entitled to basic minimum income, healthcare, and have opportunities to engage in income generation? There is some good news. Many governments are agreeing to respect older people's right to social protection by making pensions available to all older people. But this needs to be wider reaching and supported at the highest possible levels. Pensions can be an effective way to reduce existing policy of whoops, existing poverty and deprivation, and can provide protection against shocks and stresses to ensure people do not become destitute in the first place. When well implemented, these systems build people's resilience to risks by helping people meet their basic needs. And what's more, they can enhance older women's economic autonomy, strengthen their voice and energy and agency, and can be an effective way of recognising the value of unpaid work. So a good call to arms there on pensions and social protection. The next post took up another really interesting topic in development, dignity. And this is by Tom Vine, who's the director of the ID Insights Dignity Initiative. Five years ago, I published a post here on From Poverty to Power, considering the role of dignity in development. Back then I wrote, 
Development aims to give people better lives. In doing so, we mainly aim to increase wealth and health, in part because we can measure those outcomes with ease. But there's more to a good life than spare cash and extra years. Dignity is the moral worth or status of all persons, inherent, inalienable, always struggle with that word, and unearned. At that stage, we were just setting out to define our terms, still considering the need for measurement tools, and just beginning to conceptualise how measuring dignity might transform the development sector. But things have come a long way since then. We've seen deep partnerships with a bunch of organisations such as Give Directly, Shiny Hope for Communities. We've conducted lots of studies, and some, but also some things haven't changed very much at all. Here's where we think dignity's place is now in development. Political context. The biggest thing that has changed is the political context in which this work takes place. Even if many people in development had long spoken out about the iniquities of the development system, it took the events of 2020 for the sector as a whole to belatedly start to take action. Now proposals for localisation, decolonisation, inclusion and progress are on everyone's lips. We hope Dignity is contributing to keeping that conversation focused on those who development seeks to serve. As the years come, we will work to maintain the radical power of this idea and guard against it submerging into another buzzword. Actor power. Another equally big change we've seen is a rallying of Dignity's allies. Previously scattered in different institutions and disciplines, they're now far more likely to be comparing notes with one another. Research agenda. There's a huge and long-standing literature on Dignity, but for a long time it was locked into disciplines like philosophy that really and rarely intrude upon the day-to-day -day work of development. One win we've seen is a more organised research agenda that still tackles the thorny and never-ending debates about definitions, but also yields practical tools for development organisations to use in their work. And there's links for all these things. <clears throat> disrespect. For all this progress, many people still encounter disrespect when they meet the shaky bureaucracies of aid distribution. Even when they receive the material help they need, far too often these encounters are bruising and laden with prejudice. The power balance of global development is fundamentally not that far from where it was five years ago for all the well-intentioned desire for change. We've got plenty more to do. And why does all this matter? When people meet the, meet the rickety bureaucracies of international development service delivery, they should be treated in the right way, in a way that shows they matter. People all across the world are telling us this matters to them. It is central to our values, and the evidence suggests it also unlocks other kinds of impact. At the top of this post is the image of a young Kenyan woman, Faith Kasina, protesting for dignity for all. She was marching as part of Kenya's social justice movement, which has taken dignity as a central value. In interviews with members of the Matare Social Justice Centre, they told us that they experienced the Kenyan state as imposing unpredictable, violent systems and processes upon their lives, affronting their dignity and disturbing their ability to show respectful care for those around them. One contributor told us, we wish we could have more respect. Unfortunately, these things only happen to the rich people. We have a duty to do better than that, and increasingly the right set of tools with which to do so. So do look at that post. I think it's a really interesting long-term uh, shift in the undercurrents of, of aid to think about respect and dignity rather than just calories and yields. 
Next post was a, uh, a traditional link, so I liked to kick off this last week. Um, the one I point to here, I think I may have uh, highlighted this before, is the New Humanitarian magazine, which is an excellent uh, magazine for anybody working in humanitarianism or interested in it. And it does a weekly roundup, which I never miss, called the Cheat Sheet. And uh, this year, uh, this week, among other things, it had a really amazing map of the predictions of the latest El Nino weather system, which feels a bit retro. We used to talk a lot about it 10 years ago, and now we just talk about climate change. But it's still happening, and the El Nino event is coming soon. And it's going to make some countries hotter and drier, and some countries wetter. So, uh, and it seems to be a real kind of um, patchwork impact. So have a look at that map. Sign, subscribe to the new humanitarian cheat sheet. It's really good. Next post was me doing one of my conference reports. This is kind of also retro. I mean, I haven't been to conferences because of COVID for a very long time. But a few weeks ago, I attended a conference on public engagement with aid. And it was summarizing 10 years of research by the Development Engagement Lab, Dell, which is run by the University College London and the University of Birmingham. And, you know, there were, that 10 years has done a lot of very serious research. There's lots of quantitative surveys in four countries, uh, lots of qualitative, lots of experiments. Um, and uh, I just tried to summarize the findings. I think I probably did it really badly, but I, I you know, I got them, uh, I sent it to the organizers and said, please fill in the gaps and they helped me with it a bit. So the starting point is that levels of public support for aid in the four case study countries, US, UK, France and Germany, have fluctuated a lot against a backdrop of halved aid, bu aid budgets in the UK and a doubled aid budget in France. I had no idea that France had doubled its aid budget. That's amazing. Dell aims to get under the skin of this and see what's going on with lots of attention to segmenting the audience and the opinions and messages on aid and development, which might allow governments and NGOs to reverse declines where they occur. According to Dell's David Hudson, who I decided to call Dell Boy, sorry David, in the UK, the most important factors that affect support are efficacy, which is the feeling that an individual, an NGO, a government, etc., can make a difference, levels of need, and a focus on the basics, wash, food security, and health. Talking about gender equality in the environment actually reduces support for the average person. Oh dear. Things get even stickier when Dell gets into the wavering 20%. In the UK, roughly 50% of the population are broadly sympathetic to aid. Even though, interestingly, many of them don't think it works. They just think we should do it because it's the right thing to do. The rest are firmly in the charity begins at home camp. And in order to move from 50% to 70%, Dell has done lots of messaging and testing and framing about what might work for that extra 20%. Those skeptics prefer aid to go on private sector development, jobs and infrastructure, and whereas the supporters generally prefer things like women's rights or the environment. So if you want to get from 50 to 70%, it's a kind of back to basics agenda. Does it work? Does it go to the people who need it? Is it for the basics? And this opens a really interesting can of worms because to people in the development sector, this can easily look like a pretty regressive agenda. You know, it, the, the current debates are all around power, institutions, inequalities, decolonization. Nope, if you want to get that 20%, it's drilling boreholes, giving people food and vaccines. People want the rule of law. 
But that creates a tension because there's a growing focus on fragile and conflict-affected states, which is where increasingly most poor people live, but where the rule of law is weak or absent. So if you go and do aid there, it's going to get messy, and that's not going to be good for the, that 20% you're trying to influence. David, the Dell boy, advocated different strokes for different folks, focus on different narratives to reach skeptics and supporters. But is that really possible? You can't sort of ring fence your messages. You can't say to the Daily Mail, oh, we're going to talk about gender now. Please don't read this. So uh, there's a real question about whether you can um, segment audiences anymore because there's so many carry across, so much carry across with the social media. But alternatively, with an apparently centre-right agenda, he asked, David asked, can we talk out of both sides of our mouths at the same time? Is there a risk we could actually turn off our core audiences when we try and win over sceptics? Well, I might, which is like what everybody's asking at the moment is what the Labour Party's asking about when it tries to you know, win the next election. But it's a perennial uh, problem, I think, a challenge. Sorry, we don't say problem anymore. In terms of how you go about shifting public opinion, Paolo Marina, also from Dell, had some fascinating findings. He's looked at the interaction between act actions and attitudes. And what he's looking for is positive feedback loops where a positive attitude leads to an action, which then leads to an even more positive attitude, which leads to more action. Once you're into that, then you've got some really big, you know, positive impacts on support for aid. And he's used like super complicated methodologies, which were entirely over my head. But what he's found was really interesting, that actually actions change attitudes more than vice versa. So you get people to do something that changes their attitudes much more than if you change their attitudes and then expect them to do things. And there's a bit which, which reminded me a bit of Paolo Freire back in the day. You know, you get people to take action at the street level, to protest, to build something, to work with, with, with neighbours. And that starts shifting attitudes and starts this positive cycle. And from an aid point of view, it doesn't. It really doesn't matter whether the action is stupid or very clever. So, you know, yeah, pour a bu bucket of ice over your head. Send stuff we don't want to someone who doesn't want it. I mean, OK, I don't approve of that, but it doesn't matter. You trigger the start of a virtuous circle of commitment. Paolo found that concern and morality are the biggest drivers, but he also found a weird positive feedback loop around guilt. Guilt leads people to take action, and that leads to more guilt. So I'm, I'm pretty sure this is the Catholics uh, who, uh, in the research um, survey. But, you know, bring it on. If, if guilt leads to action, leads to guilt, leads to action, you know, that's fine. Some final thoughts and questions. The research finds mutual interest works better than national interest. We're all in this together better than this is good for Britain. That's a really important message. Um, people like solidarity. They don't like sort of saying this will create jobs in Britain. Um, and Parliament needs to hear that because that's often the language that supporters of aid use these days. Um, Andrew Mitchell spoke, who's the new-ish and second time around. This is his second stint as UK Minister for Development. And he, he's a great speaker, very clear communications. But he also demonstrated the role of research in, in, in having an impact on policy. He loves Dell. All right. Uh, he he's actually plans to use its methodology and to set targets for his senior civil servants to increase support for aid. Uh, and he's mentioning it in all his speeches. Now, this is probably, I think, I mean, I, 
I didn't get to ask him, but I think it's probably part, for two reasons. One is it's got an essentially conservative message on how to reach the extra 20 20%. Don't mess about with the power stuff. Give out food and blankets, you know. But also, he's a Birmingham MP, and Birmingham University is one of the key, yeah, is one of the um, uh, leaders of Dell. MPs do love to support stuff in their home constituency. So funders, if you want to have impact on policy, look particularly kindly at funding applications from people in the constituencies of key decision makers. This sounds a bit patronagey, but I think that's how it works. Final points. It all felt a bit retro, you know. Um, there was an excellent panel on decolonizing imagery around aid and shifting agency to the global south. But otherwise, I think there's a peril. I love longitudinal research, right? Ten years. You actually find how things change. But the danger is that by the time you report your findings, everybody's talking about something else. The agenda's moved on. And finally, where's the theory of change? I can see why Andrew Mitchell wants increased support for aid, because that'll help keep him his job and keep him his budget. But how does that translate into more money? And how would more money translate into improvements in people's lives? There are so many questions being asked about the quality of aid, the how and the way it interacts or does not with the politics and power of players in the global south, that it seems a bit odd to go back to an exclusive discussion on quantity and politics and public opinion in the north. But a good buzzy conference, lots to learn and argue with, great networking, met some great people. Uh, but boy, I was tired by the end of two days. I've forgotten how tiring they were. Final post, The Economist. I know people have mixed feelings about The Economist. I read it every every week. It's like the fourth bridge, you know, just as soon as I've just, I'm about halfway through last week's and I just saw that the um, the new one's just fallen through my letterbox. It's a nightmare. But every now and then there are just gems. And the gem that I wanted to pick up on this one is a whole essay, you know, quite a long piece on why are civil wars lasting longer? I don't think you'd read that anywhere else. Um, and that's why I like my, yeah, that's why I subscribe. So some extracts. And what they always do is have like loads of data, loads of good research, talk to lots of people who are on top of the issue and then write really well about it. So here's a couple of, uh, a couple of things uh, I would like to mention. Just checking the time, how we're we doing? Oh, we're getting a bit long. Okay, I'll just give it a couple for a flavor. The average ongoing conflict in the mid 1980s had been blazing for about 13 years. By 2021, that figure had risen to 20. Why? Well, global norms are eroding. Um, you know, the UN Security Council has uh, Russia on it um, and, and China, and they both defend uh, people who are um, uh, def defend the actors in, in, in wars. Complexity. Between 2001 and 2010, around five countries each year suffered more than one simultaneous war or insurgency. Now 15 do. They're also becoming more international. Climate change, religious extremism, organized crime. And then it says, one country in Asia illustrates all the ills that make civil wars endure. Can you guess which one? Yep, Myanmar. Perhaps 200 armed groups, I had no idea it was that high, control slices of territory or are fighting to overthrow the government. Some are armies seeking autonomy for large ethnic groups. Others are local militias trying to defend a single village. The country has not had a conflict-free year since independence in 1948. And the, the reasons for that are climate change, uh, the coup, crime, organized trafficking, heroin and jade. Yeah, any number of things. 
and then it gives some good examples of how you can tackle that um, in terms of mediation and global efforts. So good piece, excellent piece. And on that note, I'm going to let you go. Have a great weekend. Talk next week. Bye.